you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Daniel chapter 10. Uh, That's where we're going to be picking it up here this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see one on the chair in front of you. You're you're welcome to use that one. We're in Daniel 10 uh, this morning, just continuing to walk through this series that we've called uh, Forever Rain. That was the title we gave to this one, recognizing that the central theme of Daniel is not Daniel, right? The central theme of this book is not Daniel, it's not, it's not Babylon, it's not end times prophecies, and it's not the church. But the central theme of Daniel, what we keep coming back to chapter by chapter, week after week, the theme of Daniel is the nature and the character of our, character of our forever ruling and reigning God who sits on the throne of heaven. So let's just get into that here this morning. Would you stand with me uh, if you're willing and able? And we will look to God and His Word to us this morning. This is Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And we're going to start with just the first three, three verses there. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true. And it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and mercy to us, the grace that we just sang about. This grace that will not leave us, this grace that will not fail us, this grace that doesn't get tired of us and bored with us or sick of us, but an enduring grace, an enduring love. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. Help us to hear you, help us to see you, help us to be present with you. And we pray that you would do that for us. We need that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. One of the things we say around here as sort of a, I mean, we say it pretty often, it's sort of a, a, as like a continuing ethic or, a, or an, you might call it an ethos for how we approach life in this world and with one another is that we say to each other, I say to you pretty often, uh, be gracious because everyone you meet is fighting some sort of hard and often hidden battle. We say that, we say that a good bit here, to be gracious with one another because everyone we meet is fighting some sort of hard and often hidden battle. We want this to be a characteristic, this sort of sanctified love for one another, expressed in genuine patience, expressed in grace with one another as we walk through this journey together. We want to be a prevailing distinctive of this community of God's people. And it's essentially, here's what it is, I mean, it's essentially a call to love one another as Christ has loved us. And we remember, or at least we, we, should, we should remember that this is the command given to us by our Savior, right? I mean, he said that. He says that, it's, that, that that is a defining mark of the church, our love for one another, that we would love one another. He says it's John 15 in his last time when he met with most of his disciples in that upper room before going to the cross. He comes to them and he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And then he goes on to say, here's, here's the other, here's the outworking of that. He says this, that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. So that's the desire that we have as a body of his new creation, sons and daughters, is to live out that ethic in our collective life. And in these few verses, right, these, I just started with just three verses right there at the beginning, understanding and, and, and realizing that underneath the timing, right, that historical timing and underneath the historical names that we see there, it's, it's this same love for God's people that we see expressed in the life of Daniel. Because Daniel 10, here's what it understands. It understands this truth. This is not going to be profound. This is not going to rock your world here. But what Daniel 10 understands is that life is hard. Like Dan, I know, you're like, well, yeah, I, I just lived some of that this past week. I get it. Like, or, or maybe this morning was hard for you. I, I, we, we came in here this morning. I, I've cried with three or four people already today. Like, life is hard. Hard. I'm not ashamed to admit that, and neither is the Bible. Life, life is hard. And so the Bible doesn't hide that. Daniel 10 is not running from that truth. But what it wants us to know, okay, is that in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of all the seeming chaos, in the midst of all the striving and struggling and straining, what the Bible wants us to know, what Daniel 10 wants us to know, is that we are not alone. And so these opening verses give us what we're going to call a vision of life on the field. That's what we see here in these opening verses. It's a vision, a true vision of life on the field. And it's a reminder that sometimes the battles we're called into are not really all that hidden. Here we see Daniel. It says this, verse 1, it says this, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. That word, Belteshazzar, that's a reminder to us that Daniel is not home. All right. Every time you see that, it's a reminder that Daniel is an exile in a foreign land because his name is Daniel, but they call him after the name of a foreign god. And the word was true. Here's what it says, And the word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So let's just set the stage for for what's to come here after a a, a little bit, because these dates can sometimes get lost on us. Like if I say in the third year of Cyrus, you're like, bro, I don't, that means nothing to me. And it's like, well, in the first year of Cyrus, that one doesn't mean much either. All right, but that's how they used to talk about time. All right, they talked about it in those ways. And so sometimes that gets us a little bit lost. But it's important for us to recognize and remember that it was in the first year of Cyrus, the first year of Cyrus, that the people of Israel were sent back to Jerusalem. That's an important date in the life of not just human history, but especially biblical history. We see that in Ezra 1, that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, there's what it says in Ezra 1, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, whoever is among you of all his people. This is the edict that Cyrus issued. Whoever among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. So this is what Cyrus said in the first year of his reign. And so that's the timing. That's the timing of this. The circumstances around Daniel have fundamentally changed at this point. Cyrus sent them back, or really he sort of 
He really just sort of set them free to return back if they chose to. About 70 years have passed. We remember that from past weeks. 70 years have passed. They've been in exile. Now they've been sent back from the land of captivity. But now it's the third year. We come to Daniel chapter 10. It's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So some time has passed between the decree of Cyrus and where we are here in Daniel 10. Just a couple of years have passed. But look at what it says Daniel is doing. Look at verse 2. The people have been set free. They've been allowed to go back home. And look at what it says in verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was doing what? celebrating, right? He's throwing a party like, man, we are set free. People are finally back home. They're rebuilding the temple. They're getting this work. What does it say? It says, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. And then it gives us details of how he went about it. He says, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So, if, so here's the problem. If we read only Daniel, we probably won't understand why he's mourning. If we just read Daniel, we won't understand why he is fasting in this time. But what we need to know and what we can know from the rest of the Bible is that things are not going well for the returned exiles. Like They have gone back to Jerusalem. They're back there. In Ezra 3, it tells us that they had uh, rebuilt the altar, but they began to, as they began to rebuild the temple, they were met with resistance from the people around them. Like very quickly, this is what happened. They go back, they start rebuilding the temple of the Lord, and they are met with resistance. You see, those people didn't want the people of God to be the people of God. That's what it essentially means. They didn't want the people of God to be the people of God. They, they thought they were weird. And honestly, I can't understand that. Like, I've been around God's people, and I've been, sometimes we're a little weird. They thought they were a little peculiar. Like, did they get up every Sunday and go do this? Now, it would have been Saturday back then, but did they do? They just go and, like, sing songs to each other and listen to some fool get up there behind the pulpit and start talking? Ours is made out of water pipe and wood, right? It's not, like, it's awesome. We love it. Eddie made it. It's great. But it's like, this isn't even, like, a big grand marble thing. Like, they just go and do that? Some people just use, like, a music stand, whatever. How did they even get that piano in this ghetto building? Like, how did that even happen? Like, are they weird? Like, and if y'all knew what was behind these, you know, there's a garage door behind there. Like, right behind there. That speaker is glued on the wall, all right? We're just, it's a hope and a prayer that it will stay there every single week. Like, we, we people would drive by here and think, and, and you should know this, there are people who think you're weird. This is what I do for a living. I meet somebody, hey man, hey, how you doing? What do you do? I'm a pastor. Hmm. <laughs> like you are met with one or two reactions. They either think that is awesome or they think we are not going to be friends. I mean, people, they say, so this is how the people received them back then. The people of God come back. What's the first thing they do? Start building an altar to make sacrifices. What's the next thing? They start rebuilding the temple around it. And the people are like, no, nah, dude, I don't want that in my neighborhood. You're going to make our property value go down. These weird folks are moving in. And so what did they do? Now, this is important because what's their response? Some of us have to embrace the weirdness, right? What happened is Israel was met with that resistance. And, as, and what happened is they were forced to prioritize their life. They were forced to make decisions 
They were forced to embrace that identity. And ultimately, what they did is they caved. They ultimately gave up on the work that God had called them to. They caved to the culture. And there was a 15-year pause in the building of the temple until the time of Haggai and Zechariah. And so what we see is that the joy of returning home has evaporated. It's been evaporated by the pain of persecution. And what they've done is they've given themselves over to the world's priorities. And so now we find Daniel, right? He's back in Babylon. And Daniel feels this. He feels this. You see, that's where he still is. He's not in Jerusalem, but the circumstances of his people have impacted him. He feels their pain. I, I, told, you, I told you earlier this year how, how I spent some time in Ukraine a few years ago. And this is when, uh, when Laurie was pregnant with Tucker. So when I say a few years ago, it really wasn't a few years ago at this point. It was actually quite a while ago. I had the opportunity to go over there and do some work. And, and, and so um, when you've been with a people and when you know them and you've lived with them and you've worked with them and, you've, and, you've care, and, and, and you care for them and you're like heart beats in some ways with them, when you hear of their hardship, right? Like when you hear of their suffering, you don't just hear it, but you feel it. You, do you know what I mean? Like, like, it's like sending off your son or daughter to fight in a war. Like, all of a sudden, now I have a vested interest in that place. Now I have a prayer. I have a burden for that. Because these are brothers and sisters who are leaving homes that probably won't exist for them to come back to. Like, they're exiles. This is the reality of life on the field for them. And, and I know that we have problems here and, and where we are. I don't want to make light of that. Like I've been, if you paid any attention to what's happened in this church over the last year and a half, we got a lot of babies running around. One of them just took his first step up here in front of all of us. It was awesome. All right. I've been praying for our young families because I walked through Target this past week and saw empty shelves where they're supposed to be baby formula, right? I get that there are hardships that people are having to deal with. That was sad and it was frustrating and it causes us to tremble. And that's what we actually see from Daniel and Daniel 10. <laughs> He's seeing, he's hearing, he's feeling. And I know this, like for so many of us who often feel so powerless to affect any change, like so powerless to actually bring about peace. Like I don't know how to mass produce baby formula. I don't. And I also am not one who has a baby right now. Like that was, like we did, we worried about dinner this week. What am I like, oh, what are we going to mash up into the, you know, we just cook something. That doesn't mean we don't feel what other people are feeling. That's part of how we love one another is to feel what they're feeling, to, to enter into that. It's a very 1 Corinthians 12 idea that if one member suffers, all suffer together, right? This is the reality. That's not just something we say, right? It's not just like, oh, that's not like a cool cliche for the church website. It's not a sign that we hang on the door, it's the reality of a transformed heart, the willingness to be intentional, to step into the suffering, to go without. Here's what Daniel's doing. He's going without something he can absolutely have in order to identify with his people who are going without. That's why he's fasting. He's settling for less in order to identify with those people. He's intentionally doing that, to be, to be in, 
to be in communion with those brothers and sisters, especially those, and we can do this too, especially those in places of persecution. You know, the other thing that does, going without this idea of fasting, I know we don't, we, we've never called for a public fast here. We, we've never done that. We probably should, all right? Just feeling that conviction. Elders, just know that's going to get presented real soon, okay? Because I have to read Daniel and then I have to figure out what do we do with this. And here they are. They're fasting. He's fasting. You know, the other thing it does, and this might be the most important for us who are so spoiled in the Western world, is it serves to remind us that this world is not our home. And this might be the easiest, this is the truth, this might be the easiest doctrine of the Christian faith to forget. That this world is not our home. We forget that this place is not our ultimate home, but we are strangers. We're we're what Peter calls elect exiles. We are pilgrims on the journey to our home, caught in the already of redemption in Christ and the not yet of the renewal of all things. That's where we find ourselves, in that tension. And so God comes to remind us of that from our limited perspective. From our limited perspective, we tend to forget and we tend to get caught in the present moment. We get caught in the present place. We get caught in the present feeling. But in His grace and love for us, He doesn't just let us live in the delusions. Like He doesn't just let us remain in the darkness of my truth or our truth. That's that's such a common theme in the world today. Carl Truman has said this, and I think he's really onto something here. He says, the modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same. The modern self also assumes that society at large will recognize and affirm this behavior. That's a, that's a, that's a heavy quote. In fact, I'm going I'm to read it one more time. He said, The modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same. It also assumes that society at large will recognize and affirm this behavior. It's this idea of what we call expressive individualism. It's the, heart of, it's, it's the heart of much of our modern sexual ethic, to be honest. Where there is no real truth, where there's no real gender, there's nothing, such a, there's nothing objective, it's all just subjective and no real heavenly authority that determines those things. And I know that's the world you're caught up in. I know that's the world you're trying to navigate. I know that's the world you're trying to parent in. I know that's the world you're trying to live and move and have your being in. But it's the grace of God that he comes to us. Here's here's the truth. It's the grace of God that he will come to us and break us from our delusions. It's the love of God that he doesn't leave us in the lie. And so in the context of a world that seems to be spiraling out of control, like our world is today and like the world of Daniel, a world of affliction, what God does is he comes to us in power. Look at verse 4. Just look at verse 4 with me. Here's what we read. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. 
And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. If we've learned anything about our boy Daniel in the past few weeks, it's that when God shows up, he faints. Like that's his immediate reaction. Every single time God shows up in some sort of theophany or some way of presenting himself, Daniel just passes out, but he calls it going to sleep. I love that. That's how I would say it too if I was him. This passage right here, this is often called the terrifying vision of a man. You probably have that as a heading in your Bible. We're calling it a glimpse of the glory of God. That in the midst of the reality of life on the field, God in his grace gives us a glimpse of his glory. And there's all sorts of speculation about who the man is. Some think it's Gabriel. Some think it's like a pre-incarnate Christ. I'm not convinced on either of those. It seems like it seems like if it was Gabriel, since he's already popped up a couple of times in here by name, that they would have just mentioned his name here. And if it was Christ himself, we haven't gotten to this part, but if it was Christ himself, I can't imagine him needing the help of Michael, as we're going to read down in verse 13. And so I'm inclined to believe that this heavenly being here, here's my best, like, hopefully sanctified guess at what this is. All the seminarians in here can, can challenge me on this later if you want to. My best guess is that this heavenly being is actually one of the cherubim that we read about in Ezekiel chapter 1. Regardless, all right, what we can know is that the heavenly being represented God. That's what the being is doing. It's far less who he is and far more important what he's doing. Ian Duguid has, has said that the angelic messengers themselves reflect the image of the glorious God whom they serve. So to look on the angel is tantamount to viewing God himself. We, we need to understand that it's the holiness and glory of God that we're meant to see here. And like Moses being given just a glimpse of God's glory, all we need is a glimpse to remind us of how great our God really is and, and how small we really are. Notice that the voice of the angel caused Daniel to fall with his face to the ground. What did it do to his friends? Daniel fainted. What did his friends do? They just got, they got out of there. I mean, they just ran, left poor boy there with his face in the dirt. Those are bad friends, by the way. Bad, you don't need friends. like You need good friends. People who like at least get you up. Like, Daniel, I think he wants to talk to you. We'll see you later. Cause those people to run away and hide. It's, this, and it's the angelic being who actually has to help Daniel up. He's the one who puts his hand on his back. He's the one who lifted up. We see it in verse 10, that a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Daniel is terrified at this point. This is that awe and reverence that we talk about when it comes to an encounter with God. It's that fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. And again, we're prone to losing sight of this. Sometimes, sometimes I think, and I don't know if this is pride or foolishness. It's probably a combination Probably a combination of both. But sometimes I think we, here's how I think we treat God. Um, this illustration may not work, but just roll with, just nod in agreement if it doesn't work. Uh, anybody, you, Riverbank Zoo, right? 
Yeah, okay, so at least we're in the same place. All right, riverbed, you can go there and you can feed the birds. Anybody ever done this? I'm not talking about the actual, like you can't feed the penguins unless you've got some sort of special access. That's what everybody really wants to do. But, but you can go and feed the little like tiny birds. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the lorikeets. Somebody just, but the lorikeets. Like, yes, thank you. That is what they are. I have it in my notes because I didn't want to mess that up. The lorikeets, they're basically little baby parrots. I mean, not babies, they're little miniature parrots. And here's what you can do. You can, for some sum of money, go up to them and you can buy a cup of nectar. That's what it's called. And you and your children can walk into the cage with the lorikeets. All right, and they will come and they'll land on your shoulder and everybody gets a picture, like the whole website for Riverbanks. They have real animals there and the pictures on the website are stupid little birds sitting on a kid's arm. It's like, dude, give me the tiger, man. Like, I want to see the real whatever. Anyway, uh, they're in this just giant bird cage. So you buy your little cup of nectar, you walk on in there. I think, I think, I think, I think this is how we often approach God. I, I genuinely believe this is our way. We just walk up to him with our little offering, our little nectar, and we invite him to land on our shoulder, maybe land on our hand to be near us, to be close to us. And the little kids laugh like when, because every, every once in a while, like it won't go the way you want it to with the bird. It'll like make a mess on you, right? And so maybe sometimes God's plan won't be like exactly what we want, but we'll deal with that. We'll wipe that off and just keep on going. And, and it's funny and gross, but here's what it's not. It's not dangerous, right? Like if we know anything about our society today, they don't want us to do anything dangerous. So if the lorikeets were to all of a sudden become carnivorous, we're not going in there with them, right? They would not allow us to do it. This is how I think we think of God. Like he's really lucky to have us come by once a week with our kids, our little offering that we throw in the plate, and then we move on. And he's really docile. He's really safe. It might be pretty, but he's harmless, really. I can't help but wonder how many of us would walk in there with our little cup of nectar, holding our toddler's hand, right into that cage, if instead of a lorikeet, it was a lion. How many of us would dare pay the dollar and walk into that cage? You see, far too often we think far too little of our God. We see him as a miniature parrot. But the Bible presents him as a lion. Someone said this week, we have transformed God into a cosmic Mr. Nice Guy. Eager to welcome all comers to his neighborhood our culture's God is just like Santa Claus. He may perhaps threaten to put coal in your stocking if you are bad, but we all know that's an empty threat. Daniel has a different vision of God. Far from a cosmic Santa, far from an old, feeble, needy man sitting on a heavenly lazy boy watching the PGA championship, we see a vision of God's glory, of one who is glorious in sight, whose face is like what? Did you see? His face is like lightning. I don't know at what point it is in life that you begin to not be afraid of lightning. I still haven't gotten there. Lightning hits and you take cover. Lightning hits, you go inside. You don't stand there and go like this. You're like his friends, man. You, I'm out. 
He fainted. That's his problem. Whose eyes are like flaming torches. Is there any wonder that we've lost the fear of the Lord? We see him as a little baby parrot when the reality is he's a flaming torch. It's because we've neutered him of his essence. We see him as a puppy when he's meant to be seen as the lion. And when you come face to face with a lion, here's what I know. If you come to face, face to face with a lion, you do not leave that encounter the same way you went in. Now look at verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me, set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come. Because of your words, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, look at what he said. This is 18. I'm sorry, it's 19. He said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Do you you know what it sounds like is happening to Daniel? Some of you will know that. Some of you hear that and you're you're, you're on the verge right now of going there. Do you know what Daniel's? It sounds like he's having a panic attack. He can't breathe. He can't speak. He, 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 can't, he can't do anything. He's, he's in the middle, the, 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 the coming face to face with this idea. And we haven't seen the vision yet. We're going to get to the vision. That's next week. So here's a shameless plug for next week. You want to see the vision? Got to come back next week. All right. Um, tune in. You know, no, no, no. Sorry, that was the worst thing I've ever done in front of a church right there. I, ex- I expect to get a phone call about that one. Um, seriously, I would love for you to come back next week. In the midst of all this, this fear of this vision that he's gotten, it's causing him to tremble. Our boy is at the lowest point. I've sat with people in the middle of a panic attack, and it is terrifying. When you can't breathe, when you can't summon the strength to get a breath, you know how terrifying that is. It's drowning without water. Here's what we need. We can't lose sight of this. We cannot lose sight of the reality that Daniel, in this stage of life, he's an old man. He's, he's, he's reaching the end of his journey. It's coming to an end, but God is not done with him. And the importance of that is seen in the fact that God is still at work in his life. He's still working in and he's still working through him. I've seen more people than I care to acknowledge who reach a certain point of life and just sort of check out early. 
Maybe it's retirement age. Maybe it's, it's some magic number. It's when they move into some sort of assisted living or something, they just kind of go, oh, I'm done. My race is over. Some of us, especially some of our boomers, man, y'all check out real early. You're like, 55, I'm done. You're hardly halfway home, by the way. Now, what we see is God is still working in Daniel. Perhaps Daniel thought he was done. Maybe that's why he's not back in Jerusalem. Have you wondered that? Why isn't he back in Jerusalem? By the way, we were not told, so it's pure speculation. Maybe he was too invaluable for the king to let him go. We don't know. But why isn't he there? Maybe he thought he was too old to be of any real help. We don't know for sure what, what he thought of himself at this stage in life. And the truth is, and here's the truth for all of us doubters, for all of us who tend to doubt our usefulness for the kingdom of God, what Daniel 10 makes very clear is that what we think of ourselves is far less important than what our Heavenly Father thinks of us. You see, God isn't finished with Daniel. And what we see in these last verses, in the vision in this vision of life on the field, and this glimpse of the glory of God, is we see a rush of divine strength. And this gets into our ideas in recognition of what we would call spiritual warfare. And I know we don't talk about that a lot here. We, we really don't. We probably should talk about it more. What we see... What we see in these verses is a picture of the spiritual warfare that's taking place. God doesn't hide that from us. Like He doesn't deny that it's real. But as a loving father, notice that's the approach of God in verse 11. Did you see that? His opening words of assurance are, O Daniel, man greatly loved. I'm not here to harm you. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm not here to laugh at you. I'm not here to belittle you. O man greatly loved. You see what he's doing there. God is about to point out some very difficult things that are coming in the future. Some of the hard times that are coming. Some of the struggles that, that are in the days to come. God is reminding Daniel. Here's the first thing God does with him. God reminds Daniel of who Daniel is in the eyes of God. God wants Daniel to know. He wants him to remember. Like he wants him to believe. He wants him to trust that God is with him. And I want to be, that's what any good father wants for their children. For them to know that there's nowhere they can go, nowhere they can be taken, nowhere they can hide, nowhere they can be where they are not loved by their father. And he proves that. Our Heavenly Father proves that over and over again in the Bible. And by the way, he proves that over and over again in life. He demonstrates this most clearly. He demonstrates this most profoundly, most powerfully at the cross. Remember that, remember that Satan's greatest aim, here, here's something we need to remember when it comes to spiritual warfare. Satan's greatest aim is not to get you on his team, right? That's not his primary goal. He's not a recruiter. That's not what he's doing. He's not sitting in your living room bargaining with you. He's like, listen, we'll offer you some good stuff. We've got these NIL deals lined up for you, man. You just come on in and we will hook you up. He's not Texas A&M. Too soon? <laughs> Probably too soon. We got any Aggies in here? Sorry. Nah, he's, that's not what he's doing. Sometimes we see him like that. Like Satan's going to come in, sit on the couch, and make you a deal you can't refuse. That's not the way he operates. Not primarily. He's not trying to get you on his team. He's, he's not doing that. He, it's a tough sell, eternal condemnation. 
So he doesn't stand much of a chance if that's what he tries to sell you. Would you like hell? I mean, no. By the way, I am not drawing a parallel between Texas A&M and hell. Just know that, all right? I've heard College Station is lovely. I don't... Sorry. You know what his primary objective is? Can I give it to you? I'll tell you, and I want you to remember that this week. I want you to remember this every single day. Satan's primary objective in your life is just to get you to doubt. That's really it. Just to get you to doubt the love of God for you. That's his primary objective. Is to get you to doubt his promises. It's to get you to doubt his word. It's to get you to doubt his commands, his clear vision for how life works best for his image bearers. That was the tactic back in the garden. And it's never really changed. All Satan really wants is a bunch of doubters. Because doubters of God will will look outside of God for meaning. They'll look outside of God for purpose. They'll look outside of God for fulfillment. That's really his goal. And he'll dangle every carrot in front of us in hopes of getting us to turn our eyes away from the Lord. But what does God do? We got to land this plane. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We cannot lose sight of that. See, we cannot, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the persecution, in the, midst of the, in, the, in the midst of the temptation, in the midst of the doubt, we can't lose sight of the victory that Jesus won at the cross. Listen, the enemy wants to distract you from that. He wants you to turn your eyes from Jesus. Chase that career. Chase that paycheck. Chase that success. Chase that autonomy always running to something else. But well, what did Jesus say, right? Doesn't that get exhausting, by the way? Just chasing all the time, pursuing the things of the world to find fulfillment. What did Jesus say? Jesus didn't say run over there. He said what? Come to me. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Listen to me. Instagram, Instagram can't fulfill that promise. Your career, your career can't fulfill that promise. Your kids, as sweet and as cute and as thankful as we are for them, they cannot fulfill that promise. Those little idols of the heart, they will let you down. Your spouse can't fulfill that promise. Your future spouse can't fulfill that promise. Your job won't fulfill that promise. And to ask them to do that, to ask your spouse, to ask your kids to fulfill that promise of eternity for you is to ask them to do the impossible. Jesus says, come to me. And we can trust him because before he ever said, come to me, what did he do? He came to us. Jesus always takes the first step. And he still does that today. He meets us in the mess. He meets us in the storm. He meets us on the field of spiritual battle, not to watch us fight, but to fight for us. Listen to him in verse 18. You're tired. If you're hurting, If you're feeling lost, feeling abandoned, feeling lonely, feeling like you just don't know what is coming, listen to what he says to you. Oh man, greatly loved. God comes and he repeats that. He said it in verse 11 and he says it in verse 18. He said it before the bad news and he's saying it after the bad news. Oh man, greatly loved. Look at what he says. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. That is 
his call to you today. O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I've said more words than I need to. I probably should have just stood up here and read verse 18. And so I pray that you'd forgive my long-windedness. Forgive me for using a whole bunch of words to say what you said succinctly. Help us to trust in you more. Help us to look to you, our author, the author and perfecter of faith, the source of life, the source of meaning, the source of purpose, the one who holds us and our future in your hands. Help us to trust you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and respond in singing together?